In a few weeks, we'll get back to our study of Mark's gospel. <clears throat> you tell me it's not on. All right, I don't know how that happens. It was on when I clipped it on. All right, I think maybe the battery's dead. Just want to use this one? Can we just use that one? Okay. Okay. It's a bit involved. Don't go anywhere. Okay. All right, how's that? Okay, okay. A few weeks, we'll get back to our study of Mark's gospel. And where we will be at that point is in the final three chapters of Mark, where we find uh, the record of Jesus' death and burial uh, and resurrection. So uh, we hope that this series this summer is a very helpful run-up to that uh, as we consider uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. What we're doing this summer is looking at six key Old Testament passages that each give us a very powerful, clear perspective on the cross of Christ. You know, when we think about the cross, and often this is one of those things that we simply say when we talk about the cross, but we need to pause, you hit the pause button, and consider exactly what was happening in the cross of Christ. There are many aspects to the cross, many facets of that diamond. And so what we're trying to do this summer is to walk around from different angles and to think together from the Bible what was happening at the cross. What did that mean for Jesus? What does it mean for us? Why was it necessary? What was accomplished? And this morning what we're looking at is one of the most awful, wonderful, Christ-centered passages in all the Bible, Psalm 22, a psalm written by King David, the king of Israel. Uh, In this psalm, David is writing, uh, crying out to God in a prolonged period of intense suffering. We actually don't know any more than that. Some of the psalms, we get a lot of historical detail. This is not one of them, but that's actually fine because this psalm is not about King David. It's about his greater son, the great king, the Lord Jesus. And it's about his humiliation on the cross. You see, David's suffering was just a shadow, just a hint of the infinitely greater suffering that King Jesus would endure as he was humiliated for the salvation of his people. That's what this psalm is all about. You'll find a a quote on your worship guide from Charles Spurgeon, uh, who said in his reflection on the psalms, which is called the treasury of David. This is beyond all others the psalm of the cross. Before us we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ, and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. So it's my prayer and my desire for us this morning as we sort of settle ourselves down and listen to this psalm that we would ask God to give us 
that sense of just absolute wonder and amazement. Because what we're here again this morning to look at together is just this unfathomable agony and triumph of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's pray that God would make that so. Lord, as we give our attention to your word, and in it as we look together to the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Son of God was humiliated and bore the sins of his people, Lord, I pray that not one of us would simply hear this again. God forbid that any of us would find that these truths would just bounce off of us and fall to the ground. God forbid that this word, that this psalm, this beautiful, wonderful, uh, just amazing psalm would harden any heart here. Because it could. But Lord, I pray instead that our hearts would be melted and softened, that our minds would be stretched, and that our heads would just be pulled back as we gaze into the heavens and try to be stretched again to the limits of the incredible love of God for sinners. So, Lord, will you please speak to us by your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let's give our attention now to reading uh, the, the Word of God, this great psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. 
Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Do you know what it's like to ask the question, God, where are you? Some of you know that question very well. Some of you have been there, have asked that question. And by the way, it is so important that you learn to ask the question that way and not the other way, which is, where is God? Talk to God, not about him. But how many of you are familiar with that question, God, where are you? In your head, you know the truth about God. But sometimes at the street level of your life, you don't feel the truth that you know, right? So you wonder and you fear and you doubt. Well, King David felt that way, was intimately aware of that experience. You can see it in verses 6 through 8. Again, in verses 12 through 18, he's helpless. He's powerless. He's weak. But it's not just the way he feels in himself. He finds that he's opposed by everyone around him. He's scorned. He's mocked. There's this circle of enemies that's tightening around him. And all of this is so weighty and so, so acutely felt in his life that his estimation of himself is, I'm less like a man and more like a worm. David is weak. He's afflicted. He's persecuted. Now, do you understand that struggle? Maybe it's because of something you've done. Maybe it's because of something that's been done to you. But even though you know that God is good and that he's never failed his people, somehow you feel cut off from that. What you know and what you feel are not reconciled. And all you can feel and see and think about is your weakness and the difficulty of your circumstances. Well, 
King David, no, no less than King David, the Lord's anointed king who was promised a kingdom that would never fail, he felt that way. This is the experience out of which he writes. And there's this awful tug of war that's raging in his soul. What he knows to be true and what he feels to be true just are not lining up. But what David was experiencing was actually just a tiny sip of the cup that Jesus would fully drink on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, what was happening to him? The creator himself was being dishonored and reviled by his creatures. David feels that his enemies are closing in around him. He feels his strength sapped and drained away, and this is exactly how Jesus speaks and feels This is exactly what he experiences on the cross. He had given them life, these people who were crucifying him. And the life that he gave them, they used to kill him. He had given them breath, and that breath they used to curse and mock him. We've read it this morning from Matthew 27. And yet he willingly placed himself into their their hands and laid his life down. This is part of the agony of the cross that we need to see this morning. The holy, infinite God judged and condemned by sinful men. But that's not the worst of it. The intensest part of the agony of the cross is found in the opening lines of these psalms. This psalm that we've read this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night. I do not find rest. You see, on the cross, what had been a subjective experience for David, and for many of you, became an objective reality for Jesus. David felt abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned by God. David felt like God had turned his back. And many of you have felt that way and you've found yourself thinking that way. But on the cross, on the crucified Savior, God did indeed turn his back in holy wrath. We read it earlier in Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, that is noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying in Aramaic, his native tongue, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is meditating on Psalm 22. And he's seeing in the teaching and the experience of that psalm that he himself is the fulfillment of that psalm, that he himself is experiencing in in an absolutely unique way the agony to which that psalm points. Jesus' cry from the cross means that he was at that very moment in time experiencing the unfathomable pain of real abandonment by his Father. And the darkness that covered the earth was the visible expression of that spiritual reality. You see, this darkness has a biblical context. Exodus 10, Joel 2, Amos 8 They teach that on the dreadful day of the Lord's wrath, there will be darkness and thick clouds. And now that comes to its fullest expression 
This is the supernatural darkness that covers the earth on the day of of God's wrath. And so as darkness envelops the earth, the dreadful wrath of Almighty God comes wave after wave after wave after wave like an ocean of judgment on the head of the spotless Lamb of God as he hangs suspended between heaven and earth, bearing the sins of his people, condemned and judged by God for us and for our sins. Jonathan Edwards said God dealt with him as if he had been exceedingly angry with him and as though he had been the object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of the Father whom he infinitely loved and whose infinite love he had eternal experience of. This is, friends, the biblical doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That language may be new to you, and that's okay, but the concept is absolutely vital. Without this, there is no good news, there is no salvation. Jesus Christ, the eternal, sinless Son of God, took on a human nature, remained sinless in order to be an acceptable sacrifice to God, in order to satisfy his justice, pay for our sins, assume our guilt, and give us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3:13 which we heard earlier this morning. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, God's judgment, his wrath, our guilt, our misery. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law how? By becoming a curse for us. Because that is as it is written in Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. God the Father loves his son with all of his heart. Do you understand that? Maybe partially. God the, son, God the Father loves his son with all of his heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ loves his father with all of his heart. We, we really have no idea how immense their love for one another is. They, they have lived forever, forever in the sweet fellowship of the Trinity, loving one another, delighting in one another, never being separated from one another, having no division, nothing that pulls them or tears them apart, but only knowing the sweet, loving fellowship of the triune God. That's all that they had ever known until this day. Until this day, as Jesus hangs on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? Why are you so far from answering me? Why do you not draw near? Why do I not know the sweetness now suddenly of your fellowship with me? And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. God did not answer. God did not draw near. We'll sing in a few minutes how deep the pain of searing loss 
the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. For the first and only time, God the Father turns away from his boy. And Jesus remains there as God counts our sins against his son. Jesus was abandoned by God willingly, lovingly, so that we might be reconciled to him. Friends, you and I have never known this reality. You have never known this reality. Some of you have experienced such deep sorrow and hurt and loneliness that, that human, the human language can't express it. But you have never known this reality. No one in all the world has ever experienced what Jesus was experiencing at that moment as he cried out in agony on the cross, the perfect son abandoned by his loving father. And God the Father never stopped loving his son with an infinite love, even as he crushed him with an infinite wrath. And what kept Jesus on the cross? As we considered with the children in Sunday school this morning, it wasn't the nails that held him there. And some of them right now could tell you it was love. The sheer agony of the cross, it's unfathomable. But this is the depth of God's love. This is the depth of Christ's love. St. Augustine wrote, The cross was a pulpit in which Christ proclaimed his love to the world. The cross of Christ shows us the infinite dimensions of the love of God. God so loved the world. He so loved his sinful, rebellious children that he sent his one and only son, not just into the miseries of a fallen world, but to the agony of the cross so that whoever believes in him would not perish under the weight of God's infinite just wrath but freely receive eternal life so that whoever believes in Jesus would not drink the bitter cup of God's judgment as Jesus drank but would instead in its place for free and forever drink the sweet wine of God's blessing. What we see here is the agony of the cross the sinfulness of sin, the weight of God's wrath, and the depth of his love. The agony of the cross shows us the measure of God's love. In this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who turns away the wrath of God for our sins. But the cross is not all agony. The cross is also triumph, and this psalm shows us something of the triumph of the cross. If in the agony of the cross we see the measure of God's love, in the triumph of the cross we see the purpose or the goal of that love. So we've considered the agony of the cross. But let's look at the triumph. What is the triumph of the cross? If you noticed as we were reading, the psalm very clearly changes in verse 22. It turns a corner. Actually, God pulls David around the corner. And what has been a deep contemplation of the agony of the cross transitions to hope and to triumph in the last ten verses. And what is the triumph of the cross? 
you are. You are the triumph of the cross. You, the church of the Lord Jesus, his redeemed people, you are his victory. You are the triumph of his cross. You see, David says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Well, these words are placed into the mouth of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. As Jesus, the risen Christ, looks upon his people, this is what he says about them to his father. These are my brothers. The risen Christ is not ashamed in that letter we're told. He is not ashamed. That's another way of saying he is proud. He is glad. He rejoices to call you my brothers, my friends. I stand in your midst, he says, in the congregation to lead you in singing praise to God. There's a great truth here. That the Savior who's at God's right hand is right here, right here with us this morning, proudly calling you, proudly identifying with you as his brothers and leading you in praise to God. Jesus died not merely to save us, but to make us worshipers of his Father. In other words, as we are gathered here to worship the risen Jesus today, this just is the triumph of the cross. We are demonstrating the triumph of the cross. Jesus endured the agony of the cross because he knew that you were to be his triumph. He knew that you were his victory. As we'll see next week, you would be his inheritance. And now he calls you to praise the God who's given you life in him. There's only one man who's ever known the experience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should have been your experience. That should have been my experience. But for everyone who is in Jesus Christ, you can say something very different. And you can say it now, and you can say it next week, and you can say it forever and ever and ever. My God, my God, why did you not forsake me? My God, my God, I know that you will not forsake me because you forsook your son in my place. And in his abandonment, in his rejection, is my reconciliation, my fellowship, my joy, my life. Friends, we need to learn to think from the, bo- from the top down and not from the bottom up. Bottom-up thinking is what we do so naturally and so quickly. We look at our circumstances. We look at our sorrows and our hardships. And on the basis of those things, we begin to make conclusions about God. That is the guaranteed way to misunderstand God. And that is a guaranteed way to misery. And some of you don't even realize that that has been the pattern of your life. That your head and your heart are full of thoughts about God that you arrived at in exactly the wrong way. Because you look at your life, and you look at other people, and you look at this world, and then you begin to project your ideas of who God is on the basis of what you feel and see and think, and that's exactly wrong. 
That is what I'm calling bottom-up thinking, and it's, we've got to unlearn that by the grace of God. And in its place, to learn how to think from the top down. And I think you by now understand what I mean by that. To begin with God. That means to begin with the Bible, where you find who he is. And to, to, to always be thinking, who is God? What does he say he's like? What does he tell me he's done? What is his track record? You find that actually in this psalm as David wrestles, this tug of war that I was describing. He begins with himself, God, where are you? You've forsaken me. The, the word in the next stanza is yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. But I'm a worm and not a man. And then there's another but as he considers the character of God. But you've known me. You've been with me since the womb. You've been my God. I was cast upon you from birth. You see what's happening? Me, you, me, you. It's not me, 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 me. And what happens in that is not that the sufferings go away. They certainly didn't for David, and they did not for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they don't always for the believer. But it will put your sufferings in a context. And it will remind you that that context, the context of your suffering, is the absolute faithfulness and goodness of God. However, the ter however terrible the circumstances, the love and goodness and faithfulness of God are greater, stronger, and bigger, period. Now, do you know this God? Actually, every one of you in this room knows this God. The Bible tells us that because God made every one of you, and he made you to know him. He made you in his image. You can't get away from him, though sometimes you'd like to. So every one of you knows him, but what I mean is, do you know him as your father? Do you know him in the, in the way that Jesus knows him? Do you talk about him? Bad things? Do you talk to him? Do you know him? Is this Jesus who hung on the cross and bled and died for sinners, does he, is he dear to you? Is he distant to you? Is he just sort of like a cultural relic to you? Do you know him? Do you know that you're his? You can know that. You can actually know with certainty that you're his and that he's yours. If you haven't trusted him, do it today. Only the Spirit can give that trust, but it's our task as ministers of the word to say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will not perish. The other side of that is that if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish under the same wrath that Jesus himself bore on the cross. And friend, you cannot endure that. So do not wait. Don't put it off. Because I can tell you with full confidence that today is the day of salvation. Jesus is a perfect Savior. And that means he's perfectly suited to you and willing and able to save you. For you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's another opportunity for us to see together the agony and the triumph of the cross. Do you see that today? That cross is for you. That Savior is for you.
the love of the Father behind all of that, that's the love of your Father for you. So let me ask you this question. Is there any reason for you to doubt God's love? Can you get to the bottom of it? Do you think God would give his son for you and then is the cross some kind of bait and switch? God would give his son for you and then withdraw from you? No. Do you think that God would ever judge you now that he's judged his son? If Jesus has still paid it all, will God keep demanding payment from you? No. If God has done all of this in love, there's no reason for you to suspect him in fear or doubt. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Psalm 44. That's very much like what we read today, isn't it? Lord, it feels like you're leading us to death. Here's the New Testament answer to that feeling. No. <laughs> That's what Paul says next. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Why is that? Because Jesus was separated from the love of God. And then raised by his power on the third day, that all who come to hear would have life and fellowship with God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now, today, tomorrow, yesterday, all the way into eternity. So if your faith is in Christ, if you're looking to him, this is what you can know. And know it, know it to God with your mouth. God, you mysteriously, wonderfully abandoned your son on the cross. I do not comprehend that, but I do know that that means you will not turn away from me. Help me to think from the top down. Help me to understand what it meant that he bore my sin, that he bore your wrath in my place, so that I would with him sing praise to you, whatever happens. That's the triumph of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which opens the heavens to us and shows us the beauty and the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, please take these words. Please take this picture, this declaration of the agony and the triumph of the cross and drive it home to our hearts and our minds, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.
the elders who are helping with communion would, would please come forward.